This episode of the podcast is with my very good friend and one of my favorite people in the entire world, Steve Laughlin. Steve is one of the veterans of the American independent watch scene, and he's been running Raven watches for over a decade. I've looked up to him since 2015 when I first found out about the brand, and I finally had the privilege of meeting him in New York a couple of years ago at a Dive Watches Facebook group event. In our conversation, we talk about things ranging from the impact of the current pandemic on our lives and our business, how life will look different after the dust settles, and what the rest of the year might look like for us. We also talk about some memories that we had in Hong Kong last year when we attended the Watch and Clock Fair. Steve is also an extremely adventurous guy, so we talk about an experience that he had meeting Alex Honnold while he took part in a 24-hour long rock climbing event. We discuss some of our other passions in life and the importance of holding on to them as we move forward in our lives. And finally, we talk about the history and the evolution of Raven watches, as well as what the near future looks like for the company. Sit back, wash your hands, and enjoy the show. So, so what are you drinking? You, well, you said you're drinking cold brew. You made it this morning or or last night, I guess. Yeah, I've I've been making a bunch of homemade cold brew. Yeah. I got like two pitchers, two pitchers going at the same time, so I don't run out. Where do you get your beans from? Um, well, in the past, I used to go different places and and grind them at the store and and bring them home. But with the with the um, with the stay-at-home stuff, I've just been going to wherever and buying bags of like, you know, yeah. Starbucks ground whatever. I got the Italian uh, this time, and and it's actually not the right uh, grind size for cold brew, but mm. I, my filters work. My filters are very uh, tight. So what, what's the uh, what's the difference? How are you supposed to do cold brew? Uh, with a coarse grind, okay. so like the big chunky coarse coarse grind. Yeah. Uh, but this is this has been working fine. Mm-hmm. It, it's totally fine. Nice. Uh, the coarse grind's easier to like filter. Right. Uh, I'm I'm drinking a uh, Scotch whiskey. This one's uh, Balvini Double Wood, 17 years. Uh, I just I pretty much just stole it from my dad's stash nice. on the bookshelf. So, but needed needed something. Ah. <laughs> it's, it's like you're in high school. Yeah, pretty much. It's like high school. Um. So what's new, man? What's uh, what's been going on? Um. Been a lot of time at home, mm-hmm. so uh, I want to say, what week am I on here? Uh, one week, two, three. Wow, we we've almost been home for four weeks, um, straight. Really, that long? Yeah, we were one of the first uh, states to, to. Basically, the governor said everybody go stay home, uh, don't work if you don't have to, mm-hmm. and we're shutting the schools down for the rest of the year, and this was like. Before Washington State and New York had even, I, I believe they hadn't even done that yet. Oh, jeez! And so a lot of a lot of people were like, "What is she doing? And why? And all this stuff." And it got very political very quickly, you know, because yeah. you know if she's a Democrat and whatever, people are like, "This is stupid." But you look at the situation of the world now, and I can look at the at the map of the United States, and we definitely have a lot fewer cases even than our neighbors all around right. us. Um, yeah, I was going to say after four weeks, you should see some kind of, um, tangible results of the lockdown. And I think that's something that a few other States are starting to realize now, like Florida didn't shut down until just a few days ago and, uh, they've been climbing up the ranks real quick. Yeah. I, I think we had like less than 10 cases in, in the Kansas city metro area mm-hmm. and it was a complete shutdown. Like everybody go home, shut the schools down. Yeah. And so we're last time I checked, I mean, it's hard to tell with all these results um, what's accurate. But if you go to like the Johns Hopkins map, um, you know, our state is really, really quite low. Yeah. But and I've also heard that we're not test and everybody's not testing to full capacity. Yeah. So they really don't know. Um, but if you if everybody's not testing, then you can look at the numbers and say, well, we're still lower than everybody else. Right. right. Um, How, how's life looking different for you now that you're stuck at home? Well, you know, I have my daughters in high school and uh, my sons in middle school, so they're continuing to do uh, a full school day's work every day. So they're on computers upstairs, and we we basically rearrange the house. So they have uh, 
desks set up in the living room and um, they're in like opposite sides of the house so they can concentrate and be away from each other. Mm-hmm. Um, but then they take breaks throughout the day and we go outside. Um, but then they also do like what we're doing right now. They do with their friends. So they're, they're chatting online and yeah. having video conferences and stuff with their, with their friends. But um, for me, I, like the last, I've, I've actually gotten a lot of work done. I, I set up here in my basement, um, which is where I kind of started doing this whole watch business uh, like 10 years ago. Yeah. And then, like I've told you before, we, I moved out of my house about five years ago, which was really about the right time. Like my kids were very loud upstairs. You know, they were like, mm-hmm. you know, ele- elementary school kids. And I'd have people saying, hey, can I come and see this, you know, Raven Trekker? Or I'd like to try this watch on or whatever. Yeah. And, and so I was meeting a lot of people out at the bars. I'd be like, well, can we meet tonight, you know, at a, at a bar? <laughs> And so I did a, a lot of, a lot of, I'm sure you do this too. Like a lot of. Yeah. We're, like, we're at that stage right now. Um, and, and that's one of the things I wanted to ask you if, if you suggest, or if, if you would recommend to someone in our position, uh, to get an office, do you, do you think there's a real value to having like a dedicated space to doing your work? I will, you know, I, I would have before this lockdown, I would have said absolutely. Um, but I'm actually getting a lot of work done at home. Yeah it's made me realize maybe once a year I should take a month away from my office Mm. and actually hide, hide in my basement (laughs) and get some real work done (laughs) because there's a lot of distractions at work as well. I mean, now that I have my, um, my partner with Finch knives, like we discuss things every day and then we have another guy who comes in and Jeff is there too, right? Yeah. Yeah. So Jeff is in the behind us and he, he runs his own business, but you know, it's kind of like a little sitcom show where people come in and out and, you know, throughout the day, and then we all go to lunch together or something, (laughs) but all that stuff can add up to not getting my work done. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) You know, so, so I think I've, I've been productive since I moved home and I'm seeing this as, you know, sometimes you do need to get away from everything and just go, you know, lock yourself in a basement and, and, you know, update your website or design the next watch or something like that. Yeah, I, I wonder how but, much of what we're doing now, um, that like all, how we had to change our lives, I wonder how much of that's going to stick once all of the dust is settled, right? And I mean, obviously, like with, um, with everyone working from home, I feel like companies are going to start to realize that productivity actually is more, is, is a little bit higher than if everyone has to sit in a car for two hours a day. I mean, at least in LA, right? Two, two to three hours a day is kind of the norm. Yeah. Um, and that time could be better spent doing other things. Well, my wife was just reading some article. She was reading me this morning that had some stats like one in three people admit to drinking, to day drinking right now. <laughs> so they're supposed to be at home and they're, they're day drinking, right? Yeah. And she's like, this is why companies cannot trust people to stay at home because... They don't, they're not doing their work. They're playing on the internet and they're drinking beer. Yeah, I, I get that too. But I, I do feel like there should be some kind of ramp up period. I think it, it's going to take some time for people to get used to working at home. You know, like now, now it's kind of a honeymoon period, so they can afford to day drink. But, you know, I, I think if they do this for two, three months, the excitement's going to die down, you know, and they're going to start to feel like, yeah, I mean, I still have a job. I still have to be responsible and, you know, get my work done. Well, like I said earlier, it, it, the stage of life when I moved out of the house, when my kids were in elementary school, that was a needed time for me to get away because the kids are going to be loud and they're going to do their thing and they're going to jump around on the floor, you know, upstairs while I'm trying to work downstairs. But now, like when my kids are a little bit older, they're starting to focus on, you know, being serious and being able to sit still and actually work through yeah. schoolwork. It's not it's, it's totally doable now, but there is a time when it's like, ah, I've got to get out of here uh, and I've got to separate my, you know, the other thing is that's really important is when I'm at my office, I, I come home around five o'clock and I don't bring anything home. Right. And I, and I pretty, I pretty much shut it off. But when I'm stuck here at this, you know, stay at home policy, I can sit down here on my computer till nine o'clock at night. You know, I, I can just keep working. Like I've been talking with you guys on <laughs> yeah. on WhatsApp and stuff. I can just keep. Di- I'll just keep yeah. doing that. <laughs> you know, so 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 having that office does help you set uh, business hours, right? 
you know, working at home, you just, you never really have those business hours. What about outside of work? I know you, um, you like spending a lot of time outdoors. Uh, are you still yeah. being, uh, kind of active and, and finding time to get out and, and clear your head? Yes. Well, so the last two days I've really just been stuck in this basement and I've been working on mm-hmm. some stuff and I literally haven't gotten out of my chair and, and, and yesterday it was like 75 degrees out and sunny. And I heard the kids going in. I heard them going outside a few times and I literally like left my basement at like six o'clock at night. And I went up there. I'm like, wow, there's, there's life outside. But, um, no, honestly, I, I, I did just purchase a, um, cause REI has been sending me a whole bunch of gift cards and I got my annual like dividends, which they give you like 10% back, mm-hmm. you know? So, so it's, it's really cool. Cause if you spend a bunch of money with them, say you spend a thousand dollars over a year, you know, you buy a tent, a sleeping bag and some, some couple things and that, you know, it quickly gets up to like a thousand dollars. They'll send you a hundred bucks back. So they send you 10%. I don't know. I'm, I'm a advertising for REI here, but, <laughs> but basically I got like a, I got like $180 yeah. in the mail and I didn't realize it, that I, that I'd spent that much money last year. Cause I buy a lot of clothes there and stuff too. And so I, I ended up going online and buying a, um, a, a bike packing backpack for my bike. It, it's a seat mm-hmm. pack. And, and I've never done this before, but I, I realized like if I don't have the, some of the gear, I won't actually ever do this. So I bought this, um, little bike pack that you can fit your sleeping bag in and whatever you want to stuff in there. It's like a 14 liter pack. And so I'm really itching to test this out. So I want to, I want to ride my bike down to the river, which is only about three miles from here and pack up a bunch of stuff like uh, my stove and um, like a dehydrated meal and uh, just some camp toys that I have. And I'm going to ride down there and make lunch and just like sit in my hammock <laughs> for a couple oh, of hours. Man, that sounds like the life. Okay. So I may have, I, I'll make a YouTube video yeah. about it. Just like playing with my new toy because I really don't have the opportunity. I've, I've actually missed two campouts uh, since this whole thing started because we plan like monthly mm-hmm. campouts. Um, and I, I believe like next week we had on the calendar to go over to a, a place called Clinton Lake. And there's like a backpacking trail there. And it's one of the only places in Kansas where you can backpack and like find a campsite. And uh, so we were going to go there like next weekend, but really like the state, I mean, people are starting to snitch on each other, you know, just because they're like, Hey, if I have to stay home, you have to stay home. So it's like, (laughs) that's crazy, man. Yeah. I mean, if you're out by yourself, I mean, like when I go down and make down to the river. I mean, literally there's nobody down yeah. there. It's just me. So I'll ride my bike down there and then just kind of set up my stuff, play around a bit. That's something I'm a little bummed out about with the, um, you know, all, all of our travels for the entire year have pretty much been canceled. Um, you know, obviously the plans for a wind up in Chicago, I think is staying for now, unless something, you know, unless this thing doesn't die down, but you know, the original plan was for us to head out to to meet up with you and do all of this outdoor camping, fishing, all, all that kind of stuff. But uh, yeah, but, well, I guess we'll see where it goes. Uh, we'll get it done. Yeah, I, I think once the world once this will pass and, and when it does, people will move on and forget. I mean, nobody even remembers swine flu or, you know, it's, it's like people are bringing it up now just to make a point. Yeah. But um you know, I, I caught the flu once in Hong Kong and I, I, I was so scared because it was such a powerful flu. I'd never, I've never had any, I got that in 2013. That was, I mean, I was really scared. I was like getting on my phone trying to figure out if I had bird flu or something, <laughs> but it was, and, and, uh, that's a whole nother story, but, um, but I, I, this will pass. And, but right now when we're in the middle of it, it, it does feel depressing. Like, like I think back to when you and I were in, when, when mm-hmm. we met up together in Hong Kong with my brother and we were just having such a good time and it was such a carefree yeah. time. Like, you know, we'd be out in like dirty places and And that was crowds. just a few months ago too. And that's, uh, that's how crazy it is. Yeah. 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 And I mean, sometimes you even like, like I'd come back from a late night and just go to bed and then I'm like, Oh, maybe I should wash my hands. You know, I've been yeah. out all day long in Hong Kong. Yeah. <laughs> I think we'll get back to that, you know. Yeah. But but this this summer, you're right. It it could we could we could see 
we could see more cancellations. And, uh, I, you know, I've got Blade Show coming up this summer also. We, we rented a table at Blade Show. So we may, we may, we may get that canceled, wind up. That's, um, that's Atlanta, right? Yeah, yeah. So, and they haven't told us anything yet. I mean, we've gotten some emails, mm-hmm. you know, asking like if we'd be okay postponing it or pushing it back a little bit. Yeah. But noth- nothing like cancellation yet. Yeah, I, I think the fear for, uh, for people, that's really the problem because that's, that's when people start buying toilet paper. And I read an article the other day about how gun sales in the U.S. kind of skyrocketed on the back of this whole Corona thing. But I, I, I don't understand yeah. the reasoning uh, behind either the guns or the toilet paper. I, I really think it's just people trying to comfort themselves by having a surplus of these kinds of things or, or a gun. I mean, a gun can't kill coronavirus, right? No, right. It's just in case. I think the, the mentality there is that um, uh, people, f- people fear the, the Mad Max scenario coming true. Like if, if, <laughs> yeah. if all society breaks down, you need, you need food and you need bullets, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, and, and if you don't have food, you need more bullets to go get somebody yeah. else's food. Yeah. So, so this whole scenario thing starts kicking up and it doesn't help when like a governor s- try to slip in like a, we're going to ban all gun sales during COVID. Then everybody's like, ah, yeah. <laughs> I heard our local sporting goods store said that they, they stayed open because of the second amendment. It like made them an essential business because they're basically said, you, you cannot infringe on the second amendment therefore, but this is the interesting thing. They shut down the, the entire store except for the gun department. Hmm. So you could like, you couldn't, you couldn't like go in and buy some Nikes, yeah. but you could go in and, you know, get, get whatever you needed for your second amendment. They left all the, um, like all the cannabis stores as well. They stayed open because their justification was we sell medicine and um, people need to come in and buy medicine, even though we all know that even the people that have prescriptions and, and the ID, they're not they don't really need it. I'm, I'm sure some of them do, but a lot of them don't. Um, but there, I know there's a yeah. big back and forth between the cannabis industry in California and the, the state government. And as far as I know, I believe they were the, the government didn't have an argument. They're like, yep, that's true. You do serve, um, you know, real prescriptions. And uh, I guess you guys have to stay open then. Well, I, I, I've heard a few things, too, about how um, this has really been a, a, a time where, where some of the laws become relaxed, like um, mm. like like liquor um, delivery. Like yeah. you can you can order alcohol o- online and they'll bring it to you or, you know, people like going into restaurants and getting getting alcoholic beverages to go yeah. and like taking them to go. Yeah, I, I don't remember who I was talking to the other day, but I, I think uh, I heard in New York, they're actually allowed to serve cocktails on the street now. Yeah. So, so the open, open carry or not open carry open uh, container yeah. law has kind of been lifted temporarily Yeah. just because they don't want people sitting in close quarters. I mean, I, I think some of that stuff should be relaxed anyways. I think some of it's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. I remember the first time I went to Texas when I was in college. So I went, I went to K-State and I was there when the, the big eight conference became the big 12. So like my freshman year, we just had eight, eight schools we played. And then we added the Texas schools. So when I was like a sophomore, this would have been in like 1995, 96, somewhere around there. We, we just picked up like Texas A&M and, uh, and uh, Texas University, UT, and then, um, so we, we ended up driving down there and, um, met up with some guys and went to the football game. But what I remember was like, we were like drinking before the game. And then we got into the back of these pickup trucks and with a cooler of beer. And so we were like sitting in the back of the trucks, drinking the beer and driving to downtown, whatever the mm-hmm. college station I think was, was the town we were in. And, uh, I was so paranoid that we were all going to get like, you know, open container or whatever. <laughs> yeah. And they were like, they're like, no, man, this is legal in Texas. <laughs> and so I don't know if it's, I don't know if it still is, but not only could you drink the beer in public, but you could do it in the back of a pickup truck while, while somebody was dri- driving the truck. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's one of the fun things about Hong Kong, right? Opening, um, you're going to 7-Eleven, opening a can of beer or a bottle of beer and, and walking it to your next destination. That's yeah. one of the best parts. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I can tell a story about like uh, Jake uh, from Degas watches and mm-hmm. 
I went, I went to meet up with him one time. This was, uh, 2015. And he was like, you want to go look at some, uh, used Rolex watches. And he goes to a dealer to find like some of the used, like, and at the time, you know, he found like, a um, a GMT master and a, um, the new sea dweller 40 mm-hmm. millimeter, like the new one that's really gone yeah. up in price. I remember at the time it was like eight, 9,000. Now it's like 14,000, but you, you could go into these dealers that had like, you know, legit used brand new used watches and stuff. But the funny thing is we went to the Seven Eleven and bought a bunch of beers and then we went into the jewelry store <laughs> and we, we were just setting them on the counter, you know, and the guy was like getting out. All, I mean, he, he was getting out some really cool old vintage yeah. pieces too. And we were just like chilling, just chilling in there with a couple of, uh, you know, San Miguel's or yeah. Qingdao's or whatever. Yeah. That's awesome, man. I miss Hong Kong, but I mean, poor Hong Kong, right. All, and all the, um, the companies there, especially the Cathay Pacific airlines, they're really taking a beating from the, uh, the protests. And then now this COVID-19 shutdown. So Hong Kong's really having a tough time. Yeah. Yeah, I was really... When's the next time you think you'll go back? Um, that's a good question. I, I, I really, I don't have that in the plans right now, but I, of course, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking I have to go, I have yeah. to go back. It's, it's a fun place for, for me. I have a lot of friends there. And, you know, the last time with you, I mean, we had such a good time that, and I just, and I know like if I mentioned it to my brother, he'd be like, he'd start saving right now. You know, he'd be like, yeah, we're going, yeah. we're going. <laughs> Cause even leading up to this last trip, um, you know, the protests got pretty, uh, I kept asking my brother like every week, cause it kept getting worse and worse and worse. And I kept asking him, what's your level of comfort? When do you want to pull right, the plug yeah. on this trip? You know, and, and, and cancel because you know, you, you went but a lot of people canceled, mm-hmm. like, you know, as far, as far as the watch brands and people that were going over there to the watch fair, they just canceled. Uh, and the hotels were given like half price, you know, and all this stuff. But I remember on the news, like they, the protesters had taken over yeah. the airport. Yeah, I remember that. And so then the airplane, they put, they couldn't even land, right? They were like, we're not even landing here. And for like two or three days, the airport was completely yeah. shut down. And I remember telling him, I said, look, I'm not afraid of any violence there. I'm afraid of getting mm-hmm. stuck, you know, once we get in, you know, like not having the airport open or whatever. And then I remember like, he was like, no, let's just wait and see. And then, um, you know, we ended up going over there, but like our first day there, our first full day there, um, there was a fire in front of our, our hotel. Like they, they lit this huge fire in Wan Chai and it was right down there on, uh, I don't know, on like Lockhart Street or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember you sent me, uh, or you, you were texting me at the time. Yeah. Yeah, it was on the news. And I remember like my brother and I, we, we'd had a long day because we went out to like Lantau Island and, and we went up to the cable car ride. And then, um, you know, that's just a long journey from Wan Chai over to there and back. Uh, oh, and then we went to Tayo Fishing Village. We did all that stuff that day, and we got back that night, and all the protesters were starting, oh, and we were already tired. We're like, we're, we're just going to our hotel to go to sleep. But I remember laying there, like, uh, looking out the window, and you could see the fire reflecting off of the building mm-hmm. next to me. You know how yeah. Hong Kong is. Like, like, like you, look, you look at one glass building, and you can see yeah, around yeah. the corner off the reflections. And I'm just, like, watching this <laughs> blaze. <laughs> And I had the, I had the TV on, and they were like chucking cones yeah. and 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 plastic plastic road barriers into this fire, and the fire was just this toxic black yeah. smoke. You know? so, yeah, I remember at the time they were um, they were stopping people that were wearing was it black or white? I think it was black T-shirts. Black, yeah, all black. Yeah, and, and then you were and and people with masks. Obviously, you you weren't allowed to even wear a mask at the time. And literally within a month, it completely flip-flopped. And now if you're not wearing a mask, you get all these weird looks. And uh, actually here in Macau, if you're not wearing a mask, you'll actually get a fine if, if a cop sees you. Yeah, I, I, wear, I typically wear a lot of black clothing. And I had brought two, two yeah. shirts with me that were black. Um, but I didn't wear them I, the whole time in Hong Kong. I was like, <laughs> I, wore, I was neutral, man. I'm like, I'm wearing gray. I'm wearing, I got yeah. a blue shirt on. I'm, I'm neutral. <laughs> 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 but 
Yeah, hopefully this thing calms down soon. I, uh, yeah, you were talking about being scared of stuck in Hong Kong. Well, now, now I'm stuck here, so I know exactly how that feels. Yeah, have you left your room yet? Yeah, so quarantine ended about a week ago. And um, Macau's been pretty good about having this whole thing under control because there, I think right now there are only about 40, 41 cases. Um, so they're slowly letting businesses open up a little bit. Um, obviously, not not like movie theaters or um, a lot of the more popular restaurants, but for the most part, I, I'd say we're probably at around 60% capacity. So I can still go out. I still have a gym. I still have restaurants I can go to. So mm. the, the only thing is I have to wear a mask everywhere, but that's a small price to pay for being able to actually do things. Um, but talking to my friends all over the U.S. and Europe and um, actually Singapore is on lockdown now as well. And everyone is pretty much stuck inside, losing their minds. And so I counting my blessings, you know, I'm, I'm really grateful for how things worked out. Yeah, I just talked to my friend Ralph last night and, um, you know, he lives in Thailand and he said on the 10th, I think that in like two days, they are going into a one week lockdown where you can't even go to the store. Like they, they told everybody, oh, wow. they said, buy everything you need for a week. Everything's getting shut down for a week. And I, I don't think people around here could handle that because like even in my house, like we buy a week's worth of food and we eat it in like two days because we're bored. <laughs> <laughs> and then and then we're like, oh, we got to go back to, you know, there's there's a big Walmart that's right down the road from us and they pretty much have everything. So it's like we got to go back to Walmart. Yeah. Um, of course, now we're not even going inside. Have you been to mainland China before? No, you, you no. never. All the times you went to Hong Kong, you never made the trek over to like Shenzhen no, or Dongguan. I've never had to. Um, mm -hmm. All those needs have always been taken care of for me. I've always wanted to. I've always yeah. wanted to go into Shenzhen. But yeah, it requires that extra visa and extra paperwork and yeah, whatever. Yeah. And and I haven't, I've, I've had the offer about three times um, from uh, manufacturers and from friends of mine who live in Hong mm -hmm. Kong because they know that I would enjoy going over to Shenzhen. But yeah. I would want to go with them because, you know, the English just drops off at the border. Yeah, and pretty much. It's a lot, it's a lot more challenging um, as far as getting around and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, that's something we should do together. When, um, whenever me, you, your brother, Jeff, if he wants to, yeah. Colin, we should all go over together. That'd be a lot of fun. Um, but no, I, I, I only bring it up because I was looking, uh, I was watching the news the other day. And um, actually, this was just yesterday because China completely opened up their country, but not to foreigners. So you can do travel within China, but you can't leave and no one can come in. And the crowds in China are just on another level. Like we think Hong Kong is crowded. China's it's it's just it's something else. And so literally overnight, it became like a country just packed full of sardines. Everyone was shoulder to shoulder at all the, the hikes and all the museums and the restaurants and just everywhere. And it, I don't know, I feel like it's a little bit early for, for them to be doing that. But um, but yeah, that, Shenzhen is right there. It's an hour away from where I am right now. And if one person in a crowd has something, then we'll see a second explosion. And then it, you know, it could spread again to Hong Kong or Macau or, or yeah. any, any of the nearby places. Absolutely. Um, you know, but there's also the side of China that I think a lot of people don't um, realize in their minds. Uh, and there's a documentary, there's a couple I watched on uh, Amazon and uh, that I really enjoyed them. And one of them was this, these two brothers, these two Canadian brothers, the guy's name's Ryan and, and I can't remember his brother's name, but they, um, they, they ride BMW motorcycles mm -hmm. around all, all of China. So they start in, um, Shanghai and then they head north towards Mongolia and then they head all the way out west and then they come back uh, south you know and, and then the landscape and the the type of towns they they encounter is is, is very fascinating because it's yeah. so many different cu cultures mm -hmm. and I think in our mind we we just have these big crowds and modern cities and pollution and you know all this stuff in our heads but but, you know, when I watch this documentary, it's like, I don't know, it looks more like Alaska, you know, in some yeah, parts. Yeah. Yeah. I did a drive once from Beijing to Tianjin and we 
came across this little village, stopped there for lunch, and it was Chinese Muslims. So they're, you know, had all the... Um, Out west, right? Uh, so this is northeast, oh, okay. Beijing and Tianjin. So they, I mean, they should be maybe an hour, two hours apart, but with the crazy traffic in, in Beijing, it was, it took like six, seven hours for, for a really short drive. But there was a little town that was basically only Chinese Muslims. And I mean, the way they look is just like anyone from Beijing or Tianjin, but the way they speak and the food they eat and just culturally, they're so, so different. People talk all the time about how every state you go to in the U.S., it's pretty much a different culture. But, you know, you literally drive 30 minutes out of the city in Beijing. And Beijing and Tianjin are two humongous cities. Tianjin is like a port city where all the, uh, you know, imported goods come into. Beijing is, you know, the capital is Beijing. And right in between is this little crop of uh, pop-up of a, of a tiny little town that's, you know, it, it's something that I would imagine that's way out in the boonies mm-hmm. that's super far away out in western china or something but i thought that was pretty interesting it kind of put it put a lot into context uh, as far as how diverse even single countries can be within the same borders you know it's interesting I, my my brother-in-law lives in jackson hole wyoming and the chinese mm. tourists go there for yellowstone so i think like half a million right. chinese will fly over to salt lake city and then they'll take buses up to yellowstone and um but what I found interesting is inside mainland China, there's a town that they made called Jackson Hole. No way. Where is that? I don't, just put in Jackson Hole, China. And it's there's this community that they built inside China that has like these rustic Western U.S. style houses. And they've tried to Im- imitate like this Wyoming lifestyle inside China. Hmm. Yeah. Oh, no way. Yeah, this is crazy. <laughs> so oh, if, that is nuts. If, if you're ever in China and you want to, you know, feel like you're back in Wyoming, you can go to Jackson Hole, China. Yeah, my uncle was telling me a story of how um, back, I think it was back in the 80s, he was working in uh, the furniture industry and he was in Germany for a conference or something, or, or he was there, I think he was helping facilitate some kind of deal between China and a German supplier. And the Chinese came, they went to this tiny little town. Uh, I, I can't remember what movie it was, but there's some really famous movie that was filmed in this little town. But turns out the Chinese fell in love with this town, so they brought it back to China. Uh, I believe it's right outside of Shanghai. But the thing is, they so they took a bunch of photos so that they could reference the photos to replicate that town. But the photos were all mirror image. So when they invite the Germans over, they're like, this looks like our town, but backwards. <laughs> I wish I remember what it was called. But yeah, I thought that was pretty funny. Yeah, it is. The other side of that um, Yellowstone uh, story is that, they, they, you know, Wyoming and Jackson and, and that area is pretty small town America. Um, and they had to hire recently in recent years they had to hire Chinese speaking hotel uh, workers. So because the, hmm. the, the uh, tourists that were coming over, they didn't know how to talk to them. And you know, Chinese have different behaviors like when it comes to the buffet yeah. and the, the hotel restaurant and <laughs> yeah. things like this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know so what you Yeah, so they needed like Chinese speaking workers to kind of help, help them and you know, communicate and all that kind of stuff. But really, uh, it's yeah. fascinating. And, you know, our, our, our national parks are something that is, you know, attractive for everybody around the world right. to come and see. So, yeah. You mentioned earlier before we, um, we hit record that you met Alex Honnold. Uh, I, I kind of want to hear the whole story. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So um, what's... Uh, or just real quick, uh, just in case anyone listening doesn't know who he is, do you want to just give a quick rundown? Um. Yeah, so Alex Honnold is a—he's a rock climber. He people people know him from um, uh, what's the movie he did um, on the wall? Uh, El, El Capitan. Yeah, that you know he got the awards. I, I can never remember the movie. I've seen it twice, but what's the name of it? Um, anyways, it's about him climbing in uh, Yosemite without ropes. Yeah. Right. And the the way he does this is like. He will climb that route, you know, over and over again on the ropes and he'll get used to like every single move before he takes the rope mm. off. 
But a little side story about that is, is the guy that helped make that movie, um, Jimmy Chin. He's Chinese-American. And he's, mm. a na- he's a National Geographic photographer. And he's, he's somebody I really look up to as far as like outdoor, you know, the, what he does in the outdoors and his camera work, his photography and his video skills are just amazing. Um, and Jimmy actually lives up in Jackson Hole also. He lives in that area. But um, Jimmy did a movie before. Um, what? Oh, I can't, we got to look up the movie. What's the movie that Honnold did? Uh, free, free Solo. I, free I Solo. Yeah, yes. Free solo. Okay. So everybody yeah. knows Free Solo. But if you go watch Jimmy's first movie, which is uh, called Maru, M-E-R-U, I like that movie better. I think it's a really, the way it was shot, the action, like it's a true story about him and uh, Conrad Anker and another guy named Renan. Mm-hmm. And they go to, I think they go to China to try to climb this mountain or it's somewhere far away. But um, Mount they, Maru is what the uh, mountain's called. Yeah, yeah. And so they fail in the beginning of the documentary. They totally fail. They get in a fight with each other because it's kind of like a real hairy situation. Like, you know, they almost die. So they have to like argue with each other about, you know, wh- where to draw the line. And then mm-hmm. and then they come home and then they like they it's one of those you know, comeback movies. They go and they, they train again and they, their wives and their girlfriends are really scared about them going back again, but they're like, no, we're going, we're going, we're going. So they, they go back to Maru and they, and they get it done. Right. So I always tell people, I'm like, if you liked Honnold's movie, which was really good, go and watch Maru because the same guy, Jimmy Mm -hmm. Chin, who filmed, um, I forget the name of, I, I don't know why I can't remember the name of Honnold's movie. What'd you say it was? Free, free Solo. Free Solo. I don't know why I can never remember that yeah. name. <laughs> but yeah, if you like that movie, go watch Maru because, I mean, mm-hmm. Jimmy Jimmy really works the magic with the camera and the storytelling. I mean, he's a National Geographic uh, documentary photographer. So anyways. Yeah. But free, free Solo was about um, Alex Honnold climbing... Um, El Capitan, uh, which is in uh, Yosemite. Yeah. Yeah. So w- the way I met Honold was um, I started rock climbing over 10 years ago. And in Kansas, you do that in the gym. We have pretty good rock climbing gyms around the city. We have a few of them. And so I, there's one near my house. So I started going like every week and then like twice a week. And this was when my kids were like, you know, three years old. I remember because you can't start climbing there until you're five years old. So I brought my daughter in when Mm. she was five and she's now 15. And I brought my son in there when he was five and you know, he's now 12. Um, But I I developed some good friendships there with the guys who worked at the gym. And I I have a, I have a natural ability to climb. I'm kind of tall and lanky (laughs) and uh, I'm, I'm lightweight, but I'm strong. You know, I'm just have that climbers build. Yeah. So, so, um, I really had enjoyed it anyways, fast forward, um, years and years. And I started going down to Arkansas, which has some really good climbing, um, down at a place called Horseshoe Canyon Ranch. There's like 300 bolted lines down there you can climb. And, uh, it's, it's a climber's paradise and it's about four hours drive from my house. And one of the local outdoor, um, uh, stores here is called Backwoods. And, um, they, they wanted to put a climbing team together to uh, compete in this event. They have an annual event there at Horseshoe Canyon called um, 24HHH, which is 24 hours of horseshoe hell. So you basically climb for 24 hours and you don't stop. It's like a marathon. You climb through the night, you know, with a headlamp on and, mm-hmm. and you basically add up all the routes that you, that you did. And the harder the route, you got more points but you had to maintain like a minimum, you know, you have to be climbing at like, you know, at least a certain amount of climbs or you get kicked out, you know, or you don't qualify or whatever. You have a um, spotter or someone watching you? Uh, no, you, you have a partner. So you, you carry your own rope. And, and, and okay. the only difference um, in, in this event uh, versus regular sport climbing is they go ahead and they, they fix um, a top anchor. So they, they put the... Uh, the carabiners at the top. And so what you do is you climb from the bottom and you have, you have what's called a lead climber. So somebody who like sets the hardware 
you know, or the, the quick draws onto the rock. And so you, you know, you clip a carabiner and you clip your rope and you go to the next one and the next one, and the next one. And these, these routes are, they're only like 40 to 50 feet high. So you're only clipping mm-hmm. maybe five, uh, five or six, you know, quick draws. And then you quickly rep- your, your guy on the ground, your belayer will quickly let you down pretty fast. And then he can climb, mm-hmm. he climbs with the hardware that you set. So it's kind of a race, you know, so you're, and the, okay. and the fact that it's a race, they, they go ahead and set the, um, the top rope, the quick draws at the top, because that's one of the most dangerous things about climbing is like setting your top rope and then repelling yourself. Um, so if that part's done, then you just, you know, you just go up there and clip in, then you come down. Um, anyways, I had, I had been watching Honold. He wasn't like world known at the time. I mean, this was 2014. Um, but in the climbing world, he was very well known, very, you know, he was already like top guy, you know, in 2014, but he just didn't have a big movie mm-hmm. out. Um, so I'd watched him on documentaries and I'd watched him on YouTube. Um, and in the middle of the night, and I knew he was there, like we'd, we were talking about it all day because people were like, um, Alex Honnold's, you know, competing this year. And there, there's a there's a documentary film crew called Real Rock. So Real Rock, they they put out like a they put out like a climbing documentary every year. And I can't remember the one. I think it's like Real Rock Nine or something. Mm-hmm. But they covered this uh, competition that I was in. And so the Real Rock film crew was going around and filming, you know, Honold and and Honold kind of had an entourage with him. He had like his girlfriend at the time, and and a, and a couple of friends with him. But anyways, rolling around in style. Yeah, he was. And so I kind of ignored him because I'm like, hey, I'm, I'm here to do this contest. I got I got my own mission to do, which was and I didn't think I could do it because I wasn't like a top level climber at all. Um, and I was kind of scared, you know, to, to go through the whole nighttime phase and all that stuff. But but it was really a lot of fun. Anyways, about three o'clock in the morning, I heard his voice. And if you've seen the movie, he has a very distinct voice, you know, that I just, I picked mm-hmm. up on it and I looked over, I'm like, and, and at first I didn't realize, you know, like my brain didn't say that's Alex Honnold, but I was like, I recognize that voice. And mm-hmm. I, yeah, sure enough, I looked over and it, it was pretty cold out. Like I, I remember I had like a, a zip up uh, jacket on and cause it was like three in the morning Yeah, and he's, he's shirtless, right? So he has no shirt on and he just looks unhuman. You know, his, his muscles and his, his yeah. body type is just kind of looks like what, what a were you swimmer. guys doing? Were, were you climbing or were you just resting or what, what, what was going on? So yeah, actually at the time we were taking a rest. Um, and my, my climbing partner, Cameron, he was, uh, sleeping. He wanted to take a quick nap. So he kind of mm-hmm. like got under this rock ledge and, where it was kind of like out of the way of people because there's people everywhere all through the night. There's just people because there, I think there's like 400 climbers. Yeah. I think. So you have 200 sets of people, you know, 200, 200 teams. Uh, so there's people everywhere. And um, so Cameron kind of tucked into a, tucked under a little uh, overhang and was taking a nap. And I was just kind of wandering around and looking at the climbers and whatnot and uh, so, yeah, he, he started talking and, and uh, I just shined my headlight over at him. And I was like, oh, there's that's Alex Honnold. <laughs> <laughs> and so I said hi. And, and uh, yeah. he's like, hey. oh, but he was actually repelling or he was belaying his friend and his friend was coming down and his girlfriend was next to him. And she was talking about how tired she was. And he was basically like, hey, you don't have to stay up all night. You can go back to the tent. He's like, just go back and go to bed. <laughs> <You know? Yeah. laughs> oh man. So, so then I went and woke up Cameron. I was like, Cameron, Cameron, Alex is over here. And he looked up at me. He was like, what? I'm like, Alex Honnold. <laughs> and so, so he kind of, he kind of woke up and, uh, yeah, he wanted to come over and take a look at him. And, but yeah, you know, yeah, a few years later, awesome, he, he, yeah, it was cool. One of the things I love about Raven watches is that your personality really comes out in the watches and in the brand. And 
and I, I know you on a personal level. So it's, I can tell you're not really trying to do that. It's not like you're thinking of some kind of, you know, long-term marketing or branding strategy. You're just making watches for yourself, for, you know, for the things that you do in your life, whether it's rock climbing or, or going out and camping. And that's something I think that a lot of brands, newer, younger brands are kind of struggling with trying to find identity. And that's something that I think Raven has a, a you know, really good hold on. It might seem that way. It, it is. It's always a challenge though. You know, like yeah. year to year, I think it's because, um, as we grow up, our, some things stay with us. Some things kind of go dormant for a while. Like, like I grew up doing outdoor stuff and I was a scout and I went to Philmont twice, um, in the scouts. And, um, so I did a lot of high adventure stuff as a high school kid, but when I got into college and then those years after college, I think a lot of that went dormant, you know, like mm. I wasn't, I wasn't camping and I wasn't, um, because I was, you know, I got married and then we had kids and, um, I, but some of that stuff comes back in time. Like if it's, if it's, and, and so I think what I'm saying is like, sometimes the things you, you're passionate about can go to sleep for a while. Yeah. And, or they change, you become passionate mm -hmm. about new things. And that can reflect also in the type of watches that you're attracted to as well. It's kind of a weird thing, but yeah, you know, like, but are, are you like, conscious about it when you design a watch or when you write a uh, description or in any kind of brand content? I think so. I, I like, I mean, I, I can't, I can never design something because I think other people will like it or mm -hmm. that I think it will be trendy. I, I only design things that I'm attracted to. Like, right. And I guess what I'm saying is I'm attracted. Sometimes that evolves into new things. Okay. Yeah. For, for example, um, I like the Rolex Polar Explorer because of the history with the climbing and, mm -hmm. you know, um, and, and their marketing, you know, they market that towards like, you know, this is the watch to go climb Mount Everest with. And they show pictures of guys, you know, right. that are out in the Himalayas wearing, wearing this Polar Explorer. What I mean is at one time in your life, you might say that that's it. That's the watch that I really am attracted to. I like that, that whole philosophy and all that stuff. But then like I was look, I caught myself looking at this 39 millimeter perpetual. And five years ago, I would have been like, that's an old man's watch. That's not, that's not my watch. Right. <laughs> but you know, I'm, I'm, I'm 44 now. So it's like, uh, am I, am I getting to that point where I, I am attracted to the basic, simple yeah. oyster perpetual over the polar explorer. And, and so what happens in my Raven designs is, you know, maybe I start to put some of those, those things, those things might trickle down into what I'm offering. Mm -hmm. So do you have someone that you bounce these ideas off of in, in terms of design or even naming the models or choosing colors or anything like that? Um, not, no. Well, I sort of like with Ralph, mm -hmm. you know, I'll, 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 I used to do that a lot more with him when I worked closer with, with Ralph on the Banera stuff, we, we would yeah. definitely, uh, hash through designs. Um, but we've, we're still really close friends, but he's he's doing Benares on his own and I'm doing Raven on my own. So we don't really bounce those ideas off each other anymore. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But I think you, you you bring up a good point. It's it's good to do that. And it's good to have somebody to, um, you know, show those ideas to. Raven wasn't always just you, right? I, I remember at one point you had, what, was it a watchmaker or a watch yeah. technician or someone? Actually, he's still my, my watchmaker, my watch tech. And uh, yeah, he... He okay. and I and a, a third partner um, back in 2008 were trying to get Raven launched. Uh, and, and it was a different uh, business model. Um, the, the third partner that's no longer, he's even in the watch community anymore. But um, his idea was to, uh, to sell limited editions to pilot groups. Um, and a lot of these guys are like ex-Air Force guys. And they would... Um, you know, in their hobby time, they would, they would be in clubs, kind of like biker gangs. Right. But they're in like pilot clubs right? and they have their own little logos and stuff. And, and maybe they're all ex air force guys or whatever, but this guy knew more about that because he was a pilot and he would go up to Oshkosh and 
he would like, you know, he knew these guys. So, so he wanted to put their, their like aviation logos on the watch case back and then maybe sell 20 at a time or, or whatever to these groups. And uh, cause he was really passionate about aviation and and I like, I like the idea of aviation, but I'm not a pilot and I'm not like super passionate about it. Um, Right. I mean, I've flown a plane once just because a friend of mine took me up and said, here, take over. And that was a lot of fun. <laughs> that's a lot of fun. And, and it does. It makes you want to go through those lessons. And, and you know, but yeah. But anyways. Um, yeah. So Raven did fall apart. Um, tragically, the guy that uh, was trying to get it going, his his 21 uh, year old daughter died in a car accident. And after that, oh, man. he he just. He pulled the, I mean, he just pulled out of the watch community altogether. And I really haven't heard from him since that was like, you know, over 10 years ago. Uh, so it, it really yeah. separated all three of us. And, uh, so my watchmaker was trying to keep the brand going and he's, he's ex military guy. So he has like military friends and, you know, he lived out, um, near San Diego and, uh, you know, a lot of military out there in San Diego. And, uh, so he, he knew those guys in that community and was trying to keep that brand going just by making one watch at a time. Um, and so he had these different, uh, you know, he would order dials and then he would order cases from somewhere else and he would kind of stitch these Raven watches together. Um, and then, you know, he came back to me. So I was having success with Ralph. We were making, you know, Megalodon after Megalodon and, and Mores and, and we, were, we, were, mm-hmm. we were really taking off as a, as a micro brand. And um, uh, he came back to me and said, you know, I really want to see Raven survive and I, I can't do it. I can't do it one watch at a time. I, I need, you know, we need to basically get this into a, a production like Benares. So like we're, yeah. we're making a hundred at a time, not one at a time. And cause at the time he was still making like one watch at a time. Um, right. So he, he really wanted to just see Raven um, become a bigger brand, uh, than what it was. And, and yeah. so I, I took him on as a, as kind of a partner. He actually, you know, relocated and we worked together and, and we still work together to some degree, but he's more of a, uh, behind the scenes, uh, technician mm-hmm. and he can assemble watches and fix them and repair them and stuff. Okay. So as soon as you, uh, took, took the reins and you basically had full control of the company and the brand, you never, so all the designs were all just from, from yourself. You never kind of got inspired by someone else that com- came up with a concept or another watch that existed. What, what I remember is the Vintage 42. That, that was one of the first micro brand watches. It was that one. It was the Halios Tropic B, the Mark II Fulcrum, and then the Avig uh, Huldra, the first version. Those were the four micro brand watches that got me into the, got got me interested in, in the industry. Yeah. Um, so what happened was uh, Jeff and you know, that my other partner with Raven, he being in the military community, he was drawn to making, uh, vintage style military pieces, which were, you know, Ben Russ type ones and twos and Rolex, Mm. uh, Rolex subs. But if you look at, you know, what, what the Rolex sub used to be when it was affordable by the military and all this, you know, plexi crystals, um, yep. you know, wearing them on NATO straps and all this stuff and the, and the gold hands, he was doing that like one watch at a time. And, and you have to realize like you didn't have all these other brands. I'm not going to name them all making homage subs yeah. or vintage homage subs, you know, you might've had a, a few brands that were making like modern sub replicas, but nobody was doing vintage subs. Yeah. Nobody like not even Tudor wasn't doing it. Nobody was doing it. And so there was this demand for him to keep making, you know, like he was, he made this, this vintage uh, Raven. And that's when he came to me and said, I'm getting a lot of demand for this design, you know, this with the plexi crystal and, uh, and whatever. And I think we could make, you know, a bigger run. And so that's when I took it back okay. because I, I did, the, I was the original, I was the original designer of the, the Raven logo. Okay. 
and the Raven web. So even back before, you know, the, in the very beginning, like that was my job as the, um, like the third person in the, in the Raven business was the web designer and the logo designer. And, and so there was the guy that was making the vintage watches mm-hmm. anyway. So I took over all of it and yeah, we, we sold the vintage 42 and then the 40 and, but my vision was, okay, that's great. And, and I think it was not long after we did the vintage that, you know, three other brands were offering the same thing. Mm-hmm. And I always, even from the beginning, I had mixed feelings about putting that homage piece out there. I mean, I got to be honest. I was like, uh, yeah. what's, what's legal and not legal, you know, about doing this? <laughs> yeah. But I realized like, okay, these are really old classic designs. There's nothing really illegal about you know, making something look similar to a 1960s Rolex, but it's, was it the Trekker that followed immediately after the, uh, the vintages? Um, I think the defender might've been before the Trekker or about the same time, but the defender was completely my own creation. Mm -hmm. And the Trekker was basically like, okay, what do I like about the vintage 40? But how can I make that into my own design? You know, how, yeah. how can I bring that? Yeah, because I feel like with uh, with the Trekker and the Venture, you the the brand kind of grew into its own a little bit stronger. Yeah, uh, I, I sensed a shift, and I mean, all this happened before you and I even became friends. So I kind of sensed the shift when uh, when the Trekker came out, and it was very clear that you were moving away from doing the whole Imagi kind of um, kind of design language and really doing your own, obviously still inspired by a lot of classic watches, but it felt very much like you were, you know, you were, you were really a part of the brand. Yes. You know, yeah. like now I could see, I could see you in the actual designs of the watch. I mean, my college degree was in art. I mean, I, I, I was trained yeah. as a designer and to just make homage watches because they sell is kind of lazy. I think it's lazy. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. So I'm like, I have the, I have the, the skills to design my own, you know, and have my own design language and, and build Raven to be something other than, you know, a vintage 40 or vintage 42. That said, I mean, I do get a lot of emails that says, yeah, but yours was the best, you know, yours just <laughs> overall, you know, like, when all, when all came together, it just, it looks better, yeah. smells better. It's people want it <laughs> yeah. more than some of these other copies. But, um, I, I didn't, I don't know. I mean, I like, I, I don't know if I would say I like competition. I like to kind of do my own thing. And, mm-hmm. uh, I, I do, I get frustrated with competition. Like if I see somebody take from the Trekker or, or from, uh, something that might, you know, be, more Raven style. Um, it is kind of frustrating. It's like, you know, stop being lazy. Yeah. Go, go. And there was a guy that ripped off the Megalodon. I mean, I'm like, come on, man. Yeah. The Megalodon is, you're not ripping off a big Swiss brand here. You're ripping off me and, and Ralph and I, I mean, this is Ralph and I's design. Mm -hmm. And this guy like did a one-to-one copy of the, um, Megalodon uh, inner chapter ring with the teeth on it and everything. And well, that's one thing about this segment of the market. You know, the, the, the market will know and the word will spread very quickly, very easily, you know, if yeah. it's any consolation. Yeah. And I don't think that watches, I don't, I haven't seen that brand or that watch around anymore. So I don't think they made it. Yeah. But so um, things you have in the works now, and, and we're coming up in an hour. So I want to kind of start closing this up, but things you have in the works now, I'm, uh, I know you mentioned earlier that because it's, uh, it's so quiet, you're getting a lot of work done. So I imagine you have a lot of ideas spinning in your head and you're finally getting pen on paper. Yeah. The Trekker, uh, 39 millimeter, uh, we're moving. I mean, it's been a slow start to the year, obviously with, um, with not just the virus, but the, what the virus did to everybody with the economy. Um, I mean, you could blame it on the virus, yeah, but I think that the ripple effect is hitting all kinds of things like travel and factories yeah. and um, and just the ability to get the work done that used to be very quick and easy to get like a drawing done or, you know, prototypes or something. Anyways, 
so we've had a really slow start to 2020. Uh, but I think prototypes for the Trekker 39 will take maybe two months and then um, we'll move into production. And we're, we're kind of taking our time with this new Trekker because there are some uh, some changes to it with the case and the bracelet and things like that, that we don't want to just rush into production. We want to make sure that like the prototype is exactly the way we want it, because this this Trekker actually could be something that um, that could last maybe, you know, a, f- a few years and become like a staple, mm-hmm. like Raven product. Um, and so that that's coming along. And then I'm doing a little limited edition uh, bronze version of a Trekker. Um, it's going to be super limited, though, like 30 pieces maybe um, for this round. Uh, but I'm excited about that because I, the 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 dial is going to be like this ocean blue. And I think the color is going to play really well with the, the bronze case color. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I'm starting to work on a field watch, which I always get asked about, like when's Raven going to do a field watch or a pilot watch or a dress watch. And I, I believe that we, that the defender was that watch, yeah. but there's certain things that I wanted to change on the defender uh, and so I'm making those changes now. Yeah, I just posted something uh, this morning on our Instagram, or I guess my evening, but morning for the U.S. And it was basically a photo of the Sector Field, which is our first field watch. And uh, and basically the caption was that in 22 years ago, so 2018, the most requested watch style for us to make is a field watch. So I, I do think that it is a, a style that's in demand because people want the functionality of a dive watch and you know want to be able to take it into the water, but they want it to be a little bit yeah. simpler, a little bit easier to dress up. I, I think that's why I've been looking at that Oyster Perpetual. I mean, it's so simple. It's yeah. clean and yeah. it's small and it's simple. And so, yeah, I think I mean, styles change uh, and, and you can see that reflected. But I, I also think I'm, I'm not going to neglect uh, the dive watch um customers that have always been my core customers. And so I think after mm-hmm. like this tracker will be 39 mil and um, this field watch will probably be like a 40 mil. But I think after that, I'll circle back up to a, like a, a diver, a, a little bit bigger size. Um, you know, and maybe, maybe the, yeah. the big side of things now is like a 42, but you know, Colin and I were just talking about this. Like he calls them a, a big bruiser. Yeah. He's like, you got to make a big bruiser, right? So, yeah. <laughs> and, and I'm yeah. like, yeah, I, I still <laughs> like that style. I mean, we were talking about Marine Master 300s yesterday, and I was like, you know, I had a, I had an MM 300, and I sold it to get a Pelagos, and I'm like, man, I really want, I really got to get, yeah, I got yeah, one. Right okay, here. so if you have one, and my my dad's, yeah, oh, it's my dad. No, you should take that home. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I, I like the green one and even the blue one that they just came out with. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, but th- yeah, I saw one of those in London in, uh, in February. It's beautiful, man. It's really nice. I don't think they have any more green ones. I think those, that was a limited edition if I'm not mistaken. Mm. Well, I saw one the other day on, on uh, watch recon, but then I got to thinking, yeah. you know, what, what I should do is, is save some money, put it aside. And the next time that that you and I and Colin and we're all back in Hong Kong. We'll go down to one of those. <laughs> well, I'll just go buy one because it, it's. I just I enjoy buying things like that on a trip because then yeah. then you have immediate attachment to it. Right, right. You, like you don't have to. You don't have to like have experiences to you know to prevent you from flipping the watch. You immediately have an attachment to it because you bought it on a trip. Uh, what about beyond the uh, the field watch? So you're gonna go bigger, and then and anything on the smaller dressier side? Yeah, I mean I'm wearing a 39 mil right now. Um, this Grand oh, yes, yeah, yeah, the Grand Seiko Quartz GMT, and I really like it. Um, I don't know if I would go. I mean, and my wrist is not huge. I mean, like six and a half inch wrist. But I also think that wrist size is just one aspect of uh, being able to carry a watch. Like I'm six foot yeah, one, yeah. I'm six foot one and like 180 pounds. So just cause my wrist is six and a half. If I wear a small watch, if I wear like a 38 or smaller on a six foot one 
person, it looks really tiny, yeah. right? So it's yeah. not always about yeah. your wrist size. It's about like your overall size. Yeah. So um, I think 39 is is pretty is a nice it's a nice size but um and i mm-hmm. ev- even watching some of the video footage like that my brother filmed when we were in hong kong i i see myself on the video and i'm like oh what watch is that it looks perfect <laughs> and it's it's and the, the th- deep tech no it was it was the 39 mil oh uh, okay but it looked yeah it looked bigger than uh than i thought you know cuz you see things yeah, yeah, from yeah. from a distance and the, and it it's a little your brain plays tricks on you i think yeah all right, Steve. Uh, I want to wrap this up. I, I don't want to make this go too long. And uh, it is my bedtime, creeping up on my bedtime. So I'll let you go. Have a good day. Yeah. Hey, it's always good talking with you, Wes. And uh, look forward to it yeah. again. Yeah, so. we'll do it again with uh, with Colin. I think he's going to go over to my place in, uh, in Long Beach and pick up an extra mic so that we can all hop on a call. Yeah, that would be cool. I look forward to that. Yeah. All right. Do you want to give everyone your uh, Instagram handle, personal or uh, or Ravens or anything? Yeah, sure. Thanks. Uh, so Raven Watches is Raven underscore Watches, and my personal is Steve Laughlin seventy six, and that's all like my photographs and personal stuff, travel photos and whatnot. All right. So cool. I, I enjoy both accounts. Like both accounts are equally fun for me to to use. So. Yeah, that's something I want to talk about next time. I need some advice on getting uh, camera gear for less macro watch shots and more city landscapes and things like that. But we can save that for next time. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. That'd be a good one. All right, Steve. Take care. Yeah, have a good night. Yeah, man. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. If you enjoyed that episode, don't forget to hit that subscribe button. Now that I've essentially given up on my role of only doing these podcast episodes in person, I think I'm going to be able to get a few more of these out. So let me know which guests you'd like me to speak with by sending me an email at wesley at noticewatches.com or by going onto our website and hitting that podcast navigation button on the uh, top right. If you enjoyed this or any of our episodes, please leave us a review in iTunes. It really, really goes a long way. This week's thanks goes out to Jason Morgan. As soon as he heard that Mark, also known as Rismus on Instagram, sent us some of his favorite IPA, Jason made his way out to his local brewery to pick up some of his favorite IPA um, just to send them my way. I'm still stuck in Asia, but the beer is now sitting at home waiting for me, and I couldn't ask for a better welcome home present. So thank you, Jason. I'll let you know how it is if I ever get back to the US. Thanks again for your attention. I'll speak to you guys soon. Bye-bye now.